Listeners, readers, welcome to The Foxed Page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, best-selling author and PhD in Spanish and French literature. I need to let you all know, both listeners and uh, people who are watching on YouTube, I am coming to you again from a powder room. It is December 30th. You all will be um, hearing this sometime after the first of the year, but I need to let you know um, I've, I've sort of sequestered myself in a powder room, partially for acoustics, partially so that I will not be interrupted by my dogs or my family although who knows, um, but also because I have this real sense of needing to sort of hide myself away because I have so much excitement and so much kind of urgency to tell you all about all of the thoughts that I am having this morning. This lecture is also different because I am choosing to record today during my sacred reading hours. This has never happened before, totally unprecedented. Those of you who know me know that uh, reading has it's such a priority in my life, even when it hasn't been a professional pursuit, that I would always carve out, you know, at least a half hour in the morning to do some reading. Often um, when my kids were really little, that meant getting up before they were up uh, when that was like humanly possible, which was not every day. But now um, that, that my kids are grown, I, I, you know, often will indulge in maybe two, even more hours of reading every morning which probably sounds like insanity to most people, uh, but partially it is a professional pursuit. Also, I will say that I have essentially built my professional life around uh, these kinds of activities that will justify these hours of reading. But I was so excited this morning um, because I really have been thinking about this lecture for a while and this argument that I want to make to you. And as I was pulling together my thoughts, I just I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. I had to come and share them with you right away. The argument that I want to make today is, in fact, that reading is not indulgent, but is, in fact, necessary. So I, um, over the course of the holidays, have talked with several different people about uh, the Fox page and about reading and about what they're reading and um, it, all sorts of different topics on literature. And one of the themes that kind of ran through was that everybody was really enjoying their holiday reading and their vacation reading, but that reading really does feel indulgent. And I absolutely understand that. I often think to myself, if I just like sometimes don't understand why people read at all. And for me, mostly, that's because there's so much amazing television. Aside from the television, I, I do understand how really, really difficult it would be to make time for reading. But if you are listening to this right now, you are someone who is, in fact, invested in reading. You are someone who believes in reading. You are someone who likes to read. So I am going to give you some very good news about why, not, not in like a New Year's resolution-y kind of way, although for sure, take it in that grain if you want to. Um, I'm gonna give you some really, uh, what I hope are some good arguments for why reading needs to not feel like an indulgence for you, why in fact it uh, should be a very necessary part of your life, not only in the coming year, uh, but you know, in perpetuity. In order to make my argument a little more concrete, I'm gonna sort of lay out three problems that for me are very central and that I think, um, you know, from all the reading that I have done are, are very central for a lot of people. Women, maybe in particular, but a lot of people. So first of all, we have this incredible barrage of information. There is so much thought and so much written <laughs> So, much, so many ideas about the fact that we have too many ideas that are constantly being, um, you know, being fed to us in all sorts of different media, largely through screens. And that idea of all of that information can be incredibly overwhelming and it can be um, exhausting and it can be, uh, you know, really leading to a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of crazy, um, you know, doom scrolling, all of that. So we have this incredible barrage of information. We also are in an era, I mean, I hate to kind of feed into this narrative, but it is very hard at this moment, December 30th, 2023, to not be very concerned about the state of the world, our politics, our climate breakdown, the, the wars that are happening both in Ukraine and Israel. I mean, they're just, it's, it's, the world is, is, is a kind of a wacky place right now. 
And it's very easy to get very caught up in the, the global scene in a way that is in fact not productive and is very anxiety producing. So this idea of, of being in a certain moment where things feel um, you know, a little bleak and a little threatening and a little insecure, that, that is also a very difficult thing. So we have this barrage of information and then we are living in um, you know, what, what feels to most people like, like a fairly difficult moment in history. I will add to that this idea of busyness. So it's so interesting. I am a, you know, a 54 year old woman who is uh, really incredibly, incredibly privileged and who is just you know the benefit of all sorts of uh, all sorts of support and all sorts of ease and yet um i myself and lots and lots of my peers are just constantly feeling busy feeling like i'm not able to you know see the friends i want to see i'm not able to um you know, do the things I want to do. I have a million closets I need to like, I don't know what I'm thinking I'm going to do with them, reorganize, who knows. Um, it, there, there's just this sense of busyness and the sense of prioritizing, although I think I'm a pretty good prioritizer. But there is this sense of, of having so much to do just on a daily basis. I mean, I always go back to like cleaning out the refrigerator. Like they're just, there is a lot of stuff that has to happen during the day. So between this idea of too much information coming at us, this dark moment in the world, and then this idea of busyness, I will offer a very simple, very healthy, um, very cheap, very portable, totally, um, you know, uh, uh, convenient antidote. And that, of course, is reading. So um, in order to sort of break down the three different ways against this barrage of information, one of the ways that we can sort of stem that is, in fact, to not be doing the doom scrolling and not be, you know, feeling bad about ourselves because we're looking at everybody else's amazing Instagram, you know, moments. In fact, you know, we can sit down and we can read The Covenant of Water or we can read Lessons in Chemistry or we can read Lolita. Um, we can sort of enter into a totally different world in a way that is very deep and a way that is very therapeutic because it's not a barrage of information. It is, in fact, a sustained world that is perhaps challenging, perhaps inspirational, perhaps informative. So it's, I think, reading, I mean, it's such a simple antidote to this barrage of information. I mean, and honestly, like we all know, we don't need all that information. We just don't need it. It's not great. Um, you know, yes, we should be informed and we should be doing what we can to make the world a better place. But I would argue, in fact, that making the world a better place, uh, you know, reading, reading is one way we can do that. And then the second point, this idea of living in this kind of very difficult moment in lots of ways in history, again, there's, you know, we need to do what we can in order to fight climate breakdown. But at some point, you know, a little escapism is not the worst thing that you could hope for. Also, of course, you can use reading, read, you know, the overstory or read a book that has a lot to do, um, you know, read something dystopian and get yourself super uh, energized about avoiding that kind of apocalypse. Um, you know, there are all sorts of different ways to approach this, but a sustained reading experience is one way to either escape from the difficulties of this world or to become more informed in a way that will be helpful. But also this idea of living in this kind of, I, I've always called it a life of the mind, and it's a real priority that I myself get to lead. You know, I, I do a lot of things and I have a lot of boundaries around time and around priorities because I really do believe that a life of the mind is worthwhile. It's the same idea that Marianne Wolf has about this idea of living in this interior landscape. This, this inner landscape that we all have, it's a very important um, refuge from a lot of the difficulties that are in the world. And then in terms of busyness, I, I mean, Honestly, one of the things I am trying to do, I think a lot of people are trying to do this, is to consume less and to, to sort of have less and to um, be more slow, like literally just move more slowly in the world. Um, you know, get yourself some yoga nidra, you know, and some meditation and all of these different ways. But also reading is one way that you can slow yourself. I mean, talk about mindfulness. I mean, it may be not, you know, you can sit there and also be mindful of how your chair feels and how 
delicious your tea is and you know the scent of your candle while you are reading. But you can also use um, this idea of, of an escape and of a reading, sitting down and entering, you know, the 17th century or the future or, or simply, you know, someone's memoir. There's this incredible, um, you know, sort of grounding thing that happens, you know, reading for half an hour in the afternoon is not indulgent. In fact, that may be a very important way, you know, maybe you're not a meditator, but it's a very important way to lower your blood pressure and to give yourself pause I and mean, put your feet up. You know, there, there's all sorts of ways that that reading, I think, can can really stave off that concept of busy, busy, busyness. And I mean, lots of those things that we are thinking we need to be doing are, in fact, very expendable. So, uh, again, prioritizing reading is a way to sort of fend off uh, some of that busyness. So Marianne Wolf has written a lot about reading and what is happening in the brain when we are reading. And in her book, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in the Digital Age, which I, I uh, mostly know about through a uh, an interview that she gave Ezra Klein on his show, I believe in 2018 when the book came out. I mean, guys, the news is good. So much of what she has to say is really this argument about the value of reading. She makes a very important distinction between deep reading. So that is the kind of reading that you, I am certain, are already doing. So this is what we are doing when we're reading a memoir, when we're reading nonfiction, when we are reading a novel, when we are really lost in a, in a larger sustained reading experience. She contrasts that with this kind of scrolling, skimming reading that we also do. And of course, um, in this day and age, we are doing that more and more. But Marianne Wolf is a, a fan, in fact, of paper fiction, in part because we do this thing called comprehension monitoring when we are reading in paper. She talks about how the, um, the, the reading sort of eye will move forward and backward in a text. There's something that we're doing when we're reading more deeply that, that is a more comprehensive experience, and we're reading things more carefully, and we are expecting more of ourselves than when we are simply skimming in order to sort of gather the surface um, you know, information. The good news for all of us is that it is such a worthwhile endeavor and it is so important for the brain. So a lot of what I am basing my argument on is the kind of work from Marianne Wolf that is saying that this kind of deep, sustained reading is really worthwhile and it is something that is being sort of uh, challenged, if you will, in this digital age. I would also argue, though, that for a lot of people and a lot of women in particular, the reasons to not read are legion. And they are everything from like cleaning out the refrigerator to, you know, trying to exercise and keep fit or trying to meet the needs of your family or trying to meet very significant uh, needs that are demanded of you at work. But again, I will argue that if you are someone who likes to read, you really should think of it as something that is really um, important and something that should be prioritized, not in fact an indulgence. A couple of the things that Marianne Wolf talks about is that, and I love these concepts, when we are doing that kind of deep reading, there are brain scans and all sorts of neurology that points to the fact that every part of our brain is firing. It's a bit like um, some of those dream studies as we are reading, the brain is in fact very, very active and very alive and very engaged in ways that are very healthy. She also makes this very interesting point that reading is not natural. Like we have a language, uh, you know, part of our brain that is, you know, language is something that we were meant to do. Reading is not something that comes sort of naturally to the human brain. And that's part of the reason why it's so healthy because we are using our brain in ways that is that are that are challenging and that are drawing on all of these different aspects uh, of neurology that are really, really potent. All of that is kind of a scientific way of saying that it is very, very good for your brain to read uh, and that it is something that you should be doing more. She also talks very cogently and I think very um, sort of enticingly, in fact, about this idea of the inner landscape. As imaginative human beings, we have this incredible inner landscape and reading, and for me in particular, reading fiction, but reading any kind of work, really allows us to live in that inner landscape. I mean, it's so magical to me. Everybody's inner landscape is particular to them. It is um, unique. 
It is important. It is built and, you know, informed over all of these years of experience. And I mean, honestly, sometimes my my own just thoughts, like whatever it is that I'm spinning on is not always that great. But I do think that my inner landscape, the one that I tap into when I'm reading fiction, the sort of the way that my brain feels when I'm inhabiting a space that is being created by a, a piece of fiction is so it's so delightful. Reading is unlike any other thing that we do. You know, when you're imagining, uh, you know, a, a, a meadow of wildflowers, your meadow of wildflowers is different than mine, but it's the perfect one for you. And when we are traveling back in time, you know, to the Elizabethan era, and we're reading something like Hamnet, you know, we, we are able to travel through time, but what we are seeing is the perfect version of, of what we need to see when we're talking about a rapscallion or we're talking about, you know, a handsome young lad, but we're allowing ourselves to live in this inner landscape that is, I mean, on some level, it is superior to television and movies, although, I mean, I find that hard to say, actually, because I really love to escape into the sort of inner landscape um, that, that is, in fact, television and, in, you know, visual media, like a lazier version of the kind of transportation through time, through history, through personality, through characters, through situation that I love uh, about my sacred reading hours. Now we are moving from the important neuroscience of reading as uh, brought to us by Marianne Wolf to my favorite writer, Virginia Woolf, who is going to really, um, really make for me some excellent arguments about the importance of reading. So she not only wrote incredible fiction, one of the foremost modernists, um, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, but was also an incredibly astute literary critic and someone who had a lot of thoughts on the act of reading. In 1932, she published a collection called The Common Reader, and in it is an essay called How Should One Read a Book? And um, my intonation there is very purposeful. There is a question mark at the end of that title. So again, the title is How Should One Read a Book? And it begins like this. In the first place, I want to emphasize the note of interrogation at the end of my title. Even if I could answer the question for myself, the answer would apply only to me and not to you. The only advice, indeed, that one person can give another about reading is to take no advice, to follow your own instincts, to use your own reason, to come to your own conclusions. So I love this. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait, this is kind of a weird thing for her to be reading, um, essentially that there can be no good advice. But I actually think that my Fox Page lectures really do ascribe to this idea that I'm not going to recommend, you know, that you certainly read this, that, or the other thing. And I like to think that I'm providing a very wide assortment of fiction, predominantly fiction, also some nonfiction, but I'm, I'm trying to, um, you know, I read very widely. Someone the other day asked like how I essentially like how I decide what to read next. And it is so incredibly idiosyncratic and weird and just nothing. Like I'll see a book review. I mean, it's, it's so kind of happenstance. And I love that about it. In fact, Virginia Woolf has an excellent part about being in, um, in many different libraries, but mostly in her father's library as a young girl and reading, you know, things back to back that really normally wouldn't be read back to back and that there's so much value in this kind of variety. So I am not going to tell you what to read. I certainly am not going to, you know, prescribe one thing over another. But I will argue that whatever it is that you choose to read, the idea of reading deeply and the idea of reading profoundly and richly and really understanding the ways in which you can sort of, um, you know, take the most from your reading experience, all of that, in fact, aligns perfectly with the fact that Virginia Woolf is saying that nobody should really be telling you what to read. In fact, on the very next page, she continues an argument for why I think you should be spending time at the Fox page. She says, how are we to bring order into this multitudinous chaos and so get the deepest and widest pleasure from what we read? And my answer in part would be get yourself to the Fox page, which I'm sort of kidding about that, but I'm also really serious about this idea of, you know, this multitudinous chaos brings us back to this idea of all of this information, this barrage of information that we are subjected to. And in fact, um, you know, reading a book and rereading, which I find so incredibly rewarding and so important, um, rereading and then listening to a podcast and then listening to an interview with an author, all of that I think is such an incredibly 
valuable way to spend our time to you know get ourselves into our inner landscape to escape a little bit from the problems of the world to stop being so busy and also to in fact engage in this deep reading that is so good for the brain i also want to add um, a, a quick note from lydia davis who is a, an incredible prose writer an incredible translator of proust and of uh, of uh, flaubert and someone who is just incredibly incredibly smart she writes unique um, work that is, it's its absolutely inimitable. You can't, it's unlike anyone else. It's just astonishing work. And we are going to get to that. But in an interview that she did, she was talking about um, reading and, 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 and the way that part of what we are doing when we are reading as a culture is sharing the experience of a text and sharing the experience of, you know, these words on the page. And I find that so valuable. So one of the things that we do here at the Fox Page is we have these classes that are live Zoom classes. And it has been so rewarding for me to know that people, the idea of, of being together, I thought I had to have all these kind of bells and whistles and I thought the class had to be radically different and like sort of radically better than the lectures, but it, there was such a premium for people and so much value in simply all being together that, that really I, I, I have come to realize that reading as a community and reading the same text together and thinking about it together, especially, you know, like all physically together at the same time where you can see people and by physically, I mean Zoom. So like not that physically, um, although we do also have events uh, at, at the bookstore, live events in Menlo Park occasionally. But this idea of reading and sharing the experience of a text is so it's so magical. This idea that, you know, someone can read a covenant of water and someone else can read the covenant of water. And you have had this same, you know, obviously different, but but a very similar experience of, of moving through time and history and knowing different people. It's incredibly um, community forging. But there is also so much other magical stuff that happens when we are reading. And, and actually, Covenant of Water is a good example. Um, this idea of, of inhabiting someone else's perceptions and someone else, um, you know, their experiences is so incredible. It's just an absolutely, um, it, it's, it's the craziest thing. You know, you sit in your chair or you're walking your dog and listening to an audiobook. And you are in fact transported, you know, through time and history and into other people's psyches. It's just, it's absolutely incredible. So at one point in How Should One Read a Book, uh, Wolf is, is comparing William Defoe, Jane Austen, and Thomas Hardy. William? Is it William Defoe? I don't, I can't really remember. I'm not looking that up for you right now. Um, she's just, she's comparing Defoe, Jane Austen, and Thomas Hardy in this way that is such a good encapsulation of exactly the type of time travel and the magic of reading. Of course, Virginia Woolf put it in words that are so much more inspirational and so much more interesting than my own. She says the following. But if, in Robinson Crusoe, if the open air and adventure mean everything to Defoe, they mean nothing to Jane Austen. Hers is the drawing room and people talking, and by the many mirrors of their talk, revealing their characters. And if, when we have accustomed ourselves to the drawing room and its reflections, we turn to Hardy, we are once more spun around. The moors are around us and the stars are above our heads. The other side of the mind is now exposed, the dark side that comes uppermost in solitude, not the light side that shows in company. Our relations are not towards people, but towards nature and destiny. So she's talking about what an absolute luxury it is to be able to move from an adventure story like Robinson Crusoe to a comedy of manners, uh, which is an incredibly important piece of, of writing, to, you know, really sort of darker, uh, more uh, sweeping and, and more sort of, um, you know, philosophical texts that, that are all equally incredible and equally exciting, but that are doing very different things. And what a luxury as readers to be able to choose from all of this and to to be able to experience all of them. Then she's um, making another argument, I think that is very close to what Marianne Wolf is saying, which is that reading deeply is in fact, um, you know, it's something that is coming, I think, relatively easily to you as a reader, because you're here listening to a podcast <laughs> about reading, or at least it's something that you're, you're very interested in and something that you like to do. But Wolf is talking about what an incredible feat this is that is happening in our brains and how important it is to exercise that capacity. She says, 
To read a novel is a difficult and complex art. You must be capable not only of great fineness of perception, but of great boldness of imagination if you are going to make use of all that the novelist, the great artist, gives you. So I love this concept because, of course, my, I mean, honestly, like my entire professional life has been in dedication to this idea that, that reading is an art and reading is something that is worthwhile and it is something that, that, that is challenging if you, if you do it right and incredibly, incredibly rewarding. And this is not to say that you shouldn't be reading, you know, a quick Ellen Hildebrand, um, you know, just an absolute like romp that is, that is, you know, very well done and well structured and a real page turn. There's plenty of work that doesn't, plenty of writing that doesn't, you know, require a huge amount of effort. And that's such an important part of reading. But there are, you know, even when you're reading something that is, a, you know, a beach read or something that is meant to be sort of light, it's so much more rewarding to be doing this kind of deep reading where we are engaging our brain and we are thinking more, um, you know, imaginatively and more richly and deeply about what it is we are reading. She goes on, Wolf does, Virginia Wolf goes on then to talk about memoir and the idea of these lives of, of people and this idea of nonfiction. She says the following, it's such a beautiful image. Shall we read them in the first place to satisfy that curiosity which possesses us? In the evening, we linger in front of a house where the lights are lit and the blinds not yet drawn. And each floor of the house shows us a different section of a human life in being. Then we are consumed with curiosity about the lives of these people, the servants gossiping, the gentlemen dining, the girl dressing for a party, the old woman at the window with her knitting. Who are they? What are they? What are their names, their occupations, their thoughts and adventures? So this is, again, it's just, it's such an incredible thing that reading allows us to do. It allows us, um, first of all, it allows us to imagine this incredible, you know, lit building that Virginia Woolf is seeing at some point in the, you know, early part of the 20th century in London. But we have this, this idea that, that reading will allow us into the lives and the thoughts and the struggles and the experiences of all of these other people, which, I mean, how can that not enrich our lives? It's just, it's, it's such a, um, such a kind of basic and yet such a very important argument. Virginia Woolf goes on to make a very important point about our own thoughts being really um, inspired and being very affected by what we are reading. And it echoed a moment during Ezra Klein's interview with Marianne Wolf, where they were talking about how Ezra really only reads uh, when he's on an airplane and he apparently doesn't buy Wi-Fi. This is back in 2018. Doesn't buy Wi-Fi and, you know, no one can contact him. Um, in fact, I am really, you know, I got on an airplane, people, and I'm pretending like it's, you know, 2018 where you can't text. And I mean, I still don't even know how you can do that. I think you can text sometimes from the airplane. Anyway, I do not want to know about that. And honestly, I've never been successful getting onto the Wi-Fi of an airplane. And that also makes me very happy. So this idea um, of Ezra on an airplane is, is this idea of indulgence that we were getting to earlier. What he said is that when he indulges in, you know, a I don't know, a cross-country flight and it's five hours of him getting to do sustained reading, he finds that his own thoughts are so deeply affected and are so sort of um, well impacted by what he's reading that he'll get a huge amount of work done. Lots of times, you know, he's talking, I think, about nonfiction and, and then he will have all sorts of different thoughts um, and that it's a very productive experience, not only in terms of absorbing someone else's thoughts, but of generating his own. And in fact, Marianne Wolf has this really nice part about how when we are experiencing someone else's thoughts, when we are really immersed in someone else's world, it can't help but inspire our own thoughts. That made me think, um, over the vacation, we all watched the movies Saltburn, um, sort of extended family altogether, which we were definitely warned not to do. This was a bunch of, you know, late teenagers and early 20s and um, a bunch of 50-year-olds. But we all did watch Saltburn altogether, and I found that movie so incredibly inspirational. And it was so profound, the experience, because I had this sense of only wanting to work. I was like, wait, why am I not working more? I know it's like literally like December 23rd or whatever it was. Um, but but I, I, I had this sense of really, really being inspired to live this life of the mind and to spend time in my inner landscape and to write and to think and to 
be engaged in the world. And, you know, this was a visual medium. It was it was a movie that had very little to do happily with my own life. But there was something about um, really inhabiting a world that was so like incredibly uh, absorbing and so different and so so much of, I think, an artistic feat that really made me not only want to do those things, but I think it really did. You know, I was thinking about structure. I was thinking about narrative voice. I was thinking about all of these different things that I engage in my own sort of professional life. But the point is that lots of times uh, really absorbing ourselves in something creative in sort of a, a, a beautiful piece of literature or a beautiful movie or television can really allow our own um, insights and our own inspiration and our own thinking in a way that is incredibly valuable. So Virginia Woolf goes on to say this, but also, can we read such books with another aim, not to throw light on literature, not to become familiar with famous people, but to refresh and exercise our own creative powers? Is there not an open window on the right hand of the bookcase? How delightful to stop reading and look out. How stimulating the scene is in its unconsciousness, its irrelevance, its perpetual movement, the colts galloping round the field, the woman filling her pail at the well, the donkey throwing back his head and emitting his long, acrid moan. I mean, what a beautiful piece of literature. Of course, you know, leave it to Virginia Woolf to begin with this idea that our, our thoughts near the bookcase, you know, are, are, are going to lead us to see the world in a different and, and refreshed and incredibly uh, intuitive and important way. And then to paint this incredibly beautiful uh, bucolic picture of what is in fact out her window. But the idea stands, it's so valuable that immersing ourselves in any kind of literature or, or frankly, television and movies, any kind of artistic world will allow us uh, to see things in a different way, allow for inspiration, allow for thoughts, problem solving, all, all of the above. And Virginia Woolf offers what I think is a really beautiful defense, essentially, of reading fiction. So I know there are lots of people who only read nonfiction, and that's awesome. That's great. I, I like nonfiction. But I am always drawn to fiction in ways that I don't fully understand. And I love the way that she articulates this idea that there is a certain truth in fiction that is very powerful and very valuable. She says the following. Thus the desire grows upon us to have done with half statements and approximations, to cease from searching out the minute shades of human character, to enjoy the greater abstractness, the pure truth of fiction. And I think you can actually link that back to the idea of Marianne Wolf. You know, when we are doom scrolling and 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 sort of you know just in in just absorbing ourselves in kind of this toxic barrage of information, all of those sorts of half statements and approximations, it's you know we can we can push those aside, and in fact we can really deeply absorb ourselves in this greater abstractness, the pure truth of fiction. I, I love that concept. There is a pure truth at times in fiction that is that is incredibly helpful in terms of understanding the world and building empathy and, and feeling like we are part of a community and not alone and having solace and comfort. It's just a very, a very deep and a very valuable part of reading. Another experience that I had during the holidays when I was talking to someone about reading and literature and um, my, my podcast was that someone said, oh, well, you mostly you mostly focus on women writers, right? You know, you're sort of like, that's a, a priority for you. And um, I, it, it's funny because I don't feel like that. I don't feel like I'm purposefully reading more books by women and I don't feel like I'm only um, speaking to a female audience. But I do know, in fact, that the, the greatest readership of fiction are women, I think, between the ages of like 35 and 70 or something like that. And so my penchant for fiction is going to um, mean that I am speaking to an audience of, of, of women for the most part. Um, I also realized, you know, I was sort of like, oh, no, like I read books that aren't just like sort of for women by women. And then I realized that um, in my wrap up of the year, in my reading wrapped, um, I had my sort of dude books. And I do always include, you know, occasionally a, a dude book. And it was 2% of what I had done um, in the reading in 2023. And I really do love a lot of 
I mean, this sounds so stupid. I love a lot of writing by a lot of men. I really do. And in fact, there is a huge body of literature that I was fully immersed in, you know, Updike and Richard Ford and Raymond Carver, and then all of the postmodernists, Pynchon and William Gaddis and David Foster Wallace. I mean, I was deep, deep, deep into this world. And I think at some point um, I realized that there were voices that were speaking to me more directly and in fact more um, sort of immediately and that a lot of those voices were uh, were women's voices in fact. So I, I'm, I'm very conscious of this idea of, of like who it is that I am talking to and which voices it is that we are hearing. And um, I, I will say that Gia Tolentino, who is one of our foremost thinkers on, on what it is to be a woman today, and in Trickmere, she has this incredible chapter called Pure Heroines, which is talking very much, um, you know, she's a very readerly person and someone who identified very closely, in fact, with some of the heroines that we have discussed at the Fox page, things like Claudia um, from Claudia Kincaid from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, um, you know, people like that and Laura Ingalls Wilder and, uh, you know, Harriet the Spy. These were all people that she really identified with as a young person. And in Pure Heroines, she begins with this really, really bold and important um, idea about these narratives about sort of the heroine's journey. So the hero's journey is one of those literally ancient kind of stories. You know, the, there's all of that rhetoric about how there are only like three actual stories ever and that everybody is just sort of repeating those stories. But certainly the idea of the building's roman or like the idea of coming of age or the idea of the hero's journey, all of these are sort of these well-trod, uh, um, you know, genres essentially of literature that really tell us about the, the, the scope of a piece of literature and, and, and its arc. So she is talking about the heroine's journey. And she talks at first in this amazing chapter about the young heroines in um, fiction that she so identifies with, and then um, what happens as she is reading adolescence in fiction and then reading women in fiction and, and essentially sort of the, the, the trajectory of those women. It's pretty bleak. Here's what she says. If you were a girl and you were imagining your life through literature, you would go from innocence in childhood to sadness in adolescence to bitterness in adulthood, at which point, if you hadn't killed yourself already, you would simply disappear. So this is a really provocative and really powerful and I think a really excellent way to, to talk about a lot of the ways that women are portrayed in literature. But there is a point um, in, in her chapter where she's talking about Elena Ferrante and this idea, um, this collective in Italy who is reading all of these books that are women's voices and how powerful it is for them to really steep themselves in these voices in, in, in essentially a, um, you know, sort of an origin story kind of way. So Tolentino says this. As part of the work of entrustment, the Milan Women's Bookstore Collective read books by women, whom they called Mothers of Us All. They imagined themselves in the place of novelists, in the place of their heroines, attempting to see what they could learn by this exchange of roles. The result, they wrote, was to wipe out boundaries between life and literature. The hope was that somewhere in the midst of all these characters, somewhere within this grand experiment of identification, they might access an original source of authority. They might find a female language that could speak starting from itself. So I am someone who um, went through graduate school. I, I got my, my PhD in 2022. I'd been in graduate school since 1994, and that was very much an era when, when we were not meant to think about the author. The author was dead. We were meant to look at the text simply as a text in itself. I don't do that as much anymore. And part of this idea of, of listening to what women have to say and women speaking in voices that are particularly um, you know, female as, and to pay attention to whose story we are hearing and who is in fact articulating that story. So I loved um, this idea of these women. They, they were, I think, maybe listening more for sort of like a, like a female language, which I don't really think that exists, but certainly the idea of listening to stories from women um, and, and, and a plurality of voices and all sorts of different women with all sorts of different experiences is really, really valuable. Um, this does remind me 
of a part that I heard in that Lydia Davis interview where she was talking about how early on in her career as a writing teacher, when she was teaching in these very elite programs with these really, really talented writers, that she would often try, um, she would she would read the submissions for the programs or for her classes blindly, meaning that she didn't have the name or the gender of the person. She has learned then since, you know, gender is definitely not as binary as we used to think of it. Um, she, she talks about how she used to try to have gender parity in her classes because that seemed important and has since realized that it's really not as important as, as she once thought. And in fact, when she would try to guess um, because the papers were anonymous, she didn't know the sex of the person who was writing. And often when she would try to guess in order to have gender parity, she was wrong. So I love that as this idea of, of, of sort of, you know, thinking that there's some kind of women's writing, which again was a very big deal when I was in, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, we were re reading a lot of like Ellen Siksu and, and um, Iri Garay and all of these different voices that were talking about like a distinctly kind of feminine writing or female writing. Writing. And and the point that is being made by uh, by Lydia Davis is that even when she was trying to guess whether it was a woman or a man writing these things, she was often wrong. So I am not I'm not a real proponent of the idea that that men and women write particularly differently, but I am a proponent of this idea of paying attention to the voices that you are listening to, and and really making sure that you're identifying who it is whose story is being told and and how that story is being presented to you. Lydia Davis also had this amazing thing. So during that interview, it was such a revelation to me. And it's it was a funny thing because part, part of my degree is in fact in linguistics, in romance linguistics, meaning like, you know, romance language linguistics. So I, I pride myself as being someone who knows quite a bit about linguistics and, and about etymology and about, um, you know, Latin words and all of these different things. But the interviewer asked uh, Lydia Davis what she thought about this idea that English is a superior language because it, in fact, has more words than another language. And I was walking my dogs and I'm listening to this and I'm like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Obviously, English doesn't have more words than other languages. And Lydia Davis did this whole thing about how how English in like English dictionaries are like often bigger than dictionaries of Romance language because um, you know than, than French or or or, um, or Spanish or Italian because we as English speakers have both this kind of wealth of Anglo-Saxon words and then also this whole wealth of Latinate words that English is sort of this amalgam of the two and she used this incredible example which was that you know, we have words like underground, which is an Anglo-Saxon word, and subterranean, which mean the same thing, but one is Latinate, one comes from the Latin and the other comes from the Anglo-Saxon. And I honestly, first of all, um, I really felt a lot of humility because I was being a total know-it-all, which is always ugly. But I also was like, wait, what? Like, this is the most incredible revelation. This is the kind of thing, people, that we can learn if we are, um, you know, listening deeply to people who are thinking about literature and language and, and you know, the, this medium through which we are all expressing ourselves. But what a revelation. I mean, you know, yes, I always knew we had borrowed things, you know, from from the Anglo-Saxon world and certainly from the, the Latinate world. But this idea that, that we have more words and that we have all of these doubled words with slightly different nuances at times was just an absolute mind blower. I just I, I just was like blown away. So there you go. That's one reason right there to be thinking about literature. As we are winding things up, I do want to include um, uh, the the work of one of my favorite writers, in fact, a male writer, uh, Vladimir Nabokov. So this is, um, I knew um, as I was thinking this morning about writing and about reading and about how important both are, I knew that he would offer up some excellent things. I have this, um, this copy right here, Think, Write, Speak, Uncollected Essays, Reviews, Interviews, and Letters to the Editor. And what I loved is I um, there, I didn't find anything specific. I have to say, like, this is a really long book, so I did not, like, you know, peruse. I was basically just skimming. Oh, I was doing that, like, you know, skimming thing. And let me tell you, skimming with a big old book like this is very different than scrolling and skimming um, in the way that Marianne Wolf is using that term. But I came across this absolute gem of a, um, of a, of a, of a, piece of Nabokov's work and a piece of, of, of his collected writings. And what I loved about it 
in part is that it's so charming and it really does get to the heart in some ways of the idea of fiction and of the importance of fiction and of the importance of enduring fiction and how how much we you know as as a human species really love our stories you know Joan Didion famously said we we tell our stories um oh my gosh now I can't even remember we tell we tell stories to save our lives? Oh my God, that's so embarrassing. Okay, I'm gonna come back to you maybe with that. Mm, maybe not. Anyway, you can look that up. Very famous Joan Didion line. But I'm gonna get back to this Nabokov here because what I loved about this, you know, in the midst of um, my talking about how we should listen to women's voices, this is um, something that was written in the Wellesley, I'm getting to it, in the Wellesley College News. Um, presumably a newspaper. It was published in 1945 by someone uh, named Sylvia Crane. So here we have this woman who has written this piece that features Nabokov in a way that I found so, so charming. So it's a little bit long, but it is so worthwhile. So this profile is essentially a description of, uh, a, of a class that Nabokov gave to a group of people at Wellesley, young women. Profile by Sylvia Crane for Wellesley College News. Anything can make a story, said Mr. Vladimir Nabokov, gently shaking the foundations of English Composition 207, free writing, at a meeting of all sections of that course Tuesday evening, April 17th, at the Recreation Building. I get an idea, said Mr. Nabokov, and I live with it for a long time, perhaps a month. After that time, I simply have to record the words on paper. An uneasy titter rippled through the room. You mean you just sit down and... An unbelieving student began. No, interrupted Mr. Nabokov. I never sit. I lie in bed. Sitting up, I am useless. I cannot think to write. But what do you mean about putting the story together? But what do you do about putting the story together, ventured another student. How about conflict, for instance? You can't write a story without conflict. Conflict, thundered Mr. Nabokov scornfully, and the class thundered back with appreciative applause. The class was still not quite sure how Mr. Nabokov managed to find ideas so easily. But it is simple, he said. He gestured toward a lamp. For instance, look at that lamp. What is the first thought that comes into your mind? Oatmeal, replied a nearby listener. Fine, fine, he said. At one time in your life, you probably ate too much oatmeal. There is a story. So partially, I just find that whole interlude so charming. I mean, it really, but there is a much more important underlying message, which is, yes, I mean, for Nabokov, the part about lying down was so funny to me. But for Nabokov, you know, any anything is a story. And this idea of like oatmeal and the lamp and the associations, I mean, there is something very serious there about, you know, a very prosaic moment in a classroom in Wellesley in the middle of the 50s, yet it's so charming and so well said and so, such an incredible evocation of, of, of the kind of bumbling, absent-minded professor who is in fact a genius and who has churned out, you know, just an incredible volume of unbelievable fiction. But this idea of the process of writing and, and the person behind the writing, and yet this kind of meta thing about how we have Sylvia Crane reporting all of this to us, it's just an absolute gem. It's so fun for me to think about. And that's the kind of, you know, deep reading, you got to do some deep reading to get to that page in that book. And it is really so rewarding and so um, just so delightful. Like it just feels so good in your brain. So I'm going to make the argument again that instead of doing our doom scrolling, like if you're if you're spending too much time doing all of that and you're anxious about the world, then I would argue that what you should do is read a novel, either for escape or for solace, um, you know, for, for any any number of different reasons. If you are, um, you know, say you have children at home and you are feeling like you have no time to read and you're way too busy, it's very, very important to model the behavior of reading for children. So if you are someone who is, um, you know, I don't know, has a lot of maternal responsibilities right now, just tell yourself that sitting down and reading a book, you know, an actual novel for a few hours, um, you know, on a Sunday afternoon or for 30 minutes on a Tuesday afternoon is actually very, very good modeling for your children. Also, say you're someone who's worried about cognitive decline. You're someone who's getting getting up there in the years. You know, we're all doing our like Sudoku and we're learning to play the piano and we're doing, we're playing bridge or we're doing whatever we're doing in order to sort of keep ourselves sharp. 
there is so much value to be had in this idea of deep reading. And not only is it just so um, good for your brain and making all of those areas of your brain fire, but it's also so fun and delightful and, and just like so rewarding in a way that um, for me at least like bridge is not gonna, not gonna do that. Or say that you're someone, um, you know, one of these women between the ages of 35 and whatever, 65, who is in some sort of perimenopausal or menopausal brain fog moment. I, for example, suddenly can't spell anymore. I cannot spell. And it's totally alarming when I cannot spell particularly homonyms, but I am combating that, um, you know, that, that brain fog by really trying to, to give myself times of sustained reading when I'm giving myself a lot of hours of sustained reading. But I do think, I mean, that has to be good for my spelling. It just has to be. So this, any, you know, any one of these sort of things that is ailing you, frankly, um, if you're concerned about your health and your stress levels, you know, yes, you can meditate and yes, you can walk in nature and yes, you can take a long bath. Although I would um, say that the bath with the book is even more effective, but you know we know that reading lowers your uh, your blood pressure. We know that sitting down, um, you know, don't sit down for too long because you know whatever sitting is like the new smoking or whatever. Um, but you know you can just you can kick back occasionally and give yourself a, a, a de-stressing um, by in fact indulging yourself in some literature. And lastly, um, this goes with the doom scrolling, but you know, if you are overwhelmed by the state of the world at the beginning of 2024 here, I would really argue that reading, again, whether it's to inform yourself or whether it's to inspire yourself or whether it is simply for escape, it really is a very effective way to deal with some of the larger anxieties of, of, of the day, you know, of, of, of the moment historically. Okay. So I want to close um, with words from Virginia Woolf because they are so powerful and they are such a, um, a such a, a good sort of argument for the importance of reading as not being an indulgence, but in fact being necessary. She says this, yet who reads to bring about an end, however desirable? Are there not some pursuits that we practice because they are good in themselves and some pleasures that are final? And is not this among them? I have sometimes dreamt, at least, that when the day of judgment dawns and the great conquerors and lawyers and statesmen come to receive their rewards, the Almighty will turn to Peter and will say, not without a certain envy, when he sees us coming with our books under our arms, look, these need no reward. We have nothing to give them here. They have loved reading. So, as you begin 2024, I um, am giving you full permission and really encouraging you to not view reading as a luxury, but to really invest time and energy in a pursuit that is really, really healthy and um, really beneficial and one that you deserve. So happy new year and happy reading. <laughs>